You are listening to the Life Point Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Drew Meyer. For more information about other Life Point Church resources, please visit www.livethemessage.org. This morning we're going to continue this series called Blind Spots. We've been here this summer just really making ourselves available before the Lord, before the Word of God, before the the gospel of Jesus Christ that's meant to transform us and sanctify us, asking that there wouldn't be any blind spots in us, any logs in our eyes that would be a stumbling block to the world around us. We want to be agents of change. We want to be light in the darkness. And we don't want to be a church. We don't want to be a people. We don't want to be individuals that have a plank in our eye, a log sticking out of our eye that causes people just to scratch their heads and rather than actually see Jesus in us. So this, this morning, I want to, I want to talk about controversies and pointless opinions, things that draw us in, that, that makes um, our emotions rise up within us. Because God has created us to be passionate about things, something, passionate about something. He's, he's, that's the way we're wired. So we see it rise up in us in the silliest of moments. I mean, you're in the midst of a movie and you're crying. It's not real. It's on a screen, but something wells up in you or you're laughing like till your side hurts that emotional appeal. We just feel like we're in, we're in it, like it's real. I was enthralled with my emotions just this week. Me and my wife took a trip up to Minneapolis, to Twin Cities, just the two of us. Our kids were away at their grandparents' house, and it was just the two of us. And there it was Tuesday morning. Everyone should be at work, but it's 9.30 on a Tuesday morning, and I am bumper to bumper in traffic. And that emotional like, frustration starts to rise up in me. I'm like, why are these people on the, on the, on the interstate? I live in Ames and not Minneapolis and just getting so angst and frustrated. Have you been there in traffic? Traffic pulls that out of us, that, that passion. We wanna, something wants to rise up in us. That later that night, we were at a, a Twins game, Minnesota Twins baseball game. They're playing the Red Sox. The game actually went to 17 innings. It was like one of the longest games in Twins history. It was crazy until after 1 a.m. But that's the silly thing about sports for myself is I'm like, I'm pretty apathetic when it comes to sports. I'm starting to get into them a little bit more now that my son's kind of that age where he's really passionate about them. But, but I could be walking outside the stadium, have no idea what's going on inside of the stadium, and it have, it have, it, the, the sports game competition has no bearing on my life whatsoever. But there I am sitting in the seat, lower deck, and I am enthralled in the emotions of the game. You know, I, I'm just, I'm getting frustrated with the, uh, the opponent's fans, and I'm, and, and you know, the, the Red Sox, they are the enemy, and I'm hoping they just go down, and there's all these passions are rising up in me, and you know, the umps, mediocre calls are starting to get to you and wear, wear at you, and, and all the emotions of the game are welling up in me, and I'm getting enthralled by it. That's what we are created, we are, we are created to be enthralled by something emotionally, for that part of us to be evoked. It truly is the way God created us. But I would contend this morning, I want to propose to you this morning, that God has created us to burn for for some very specific things. He's created us to burn brightly in this world, and we need to burn brightly. Matthew chapter 5, verse 15, uh, Jesus says that we are a lamp. Prior to that, he says we're a city on a hill. We're supposed to be seen. We're supposed to burn brightly for the world to see. But in that burning, we need to make sure we're burning for the right things. And not be burning for meaningless things. Burning for things that really do not matter. 
It's what God has created us for. So I wanna ask you that question this morning. What is it that you are burning for? What is it that wells up in you? You can hardly contain. What is it that you burn for? The church of Jesus Christ is the greatest message of human history. The greatest message in, in the universe. It's a message of redemption, a message of hope, a message of God's steadfast love, of God's fierce love, of his scandalous grace poured out upon humanity that's available to literally everyone on the planet. It's the greatest message you'll ever hear. So we got a lot going for us in terms of things to burn for, things to, to be enthralled by, to just be enamored by, things that keep us up at night because we can hardly contain it. When that begins to burn in the heart of a church, a collective of people, a family, in a city, in a context, when that begins to burn at the heart of a church, that church is unstoppable. And the opposite of that, when it doesn't burn in the heart of a church, really the, tur- the church is just treading water. It's just, just kind of taking up real estate. And I want to continue to push us towards being a church that burns for the things that God's heart is, is moved by, for us to be moved by those things, to be in tune with the heartbeat of God. It's easy to be enthralled by controversy. We are surrounded by it. We live in a day and age, just like all generations, that we're enamored by controversy. I think it's just magnified in our day and age because of 24-7 news and social media. They are fueled by controversy. And we need to be discerning of that. That's how they get the clicks. That's how they get the traffic is by controversy. They want to draw you in. They want to appeal to that part of of what God created you to be, to be enthralled by the emotions of controversy. But the word of God is not silent on this topic. No, the New Testament church found themselves continually in the midst of controversy, both inside and outside the church. And so in the New Testament, we find a lot of instruction about avoiding controversy Avoiding being distracted by by needless opinions and speculations and conspiracies. So we need to be discerning. I'm going to read you just a a sampling of some some of the instruction that's given to the New Testament church in this regard. Just to give you a picture that I'm not just cherry picking Titus chapter 2 this morning. But this is a consistent instruction for us to be cautious of, for us to be discerning of. That it's a common blind spot. For us to be enthralled and distracted by the wrong things emotionally. For us to get worked up and to burn, get all passionate. This is the the mountain I'm going to die on and it's the wrong mountain you're going to give your life for. You stake your reputation and everything on it. And it is, it's a mark on the church when we do that. I'll give you a sampling here. Romans chapter 14 verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Romans chapter 16, verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles. Contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught, avoid them. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. 
1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, he says, He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And honestly, I could go on and on. We are to avoid needless divisions and quarrels, pointless opinions, controversies, speculations, these myths. We're to avoid that. But the temptation could be for a church then to fall into a state of being unfeeling, to be passive, that we're not moved by anything, that we don't have an opinion about anything. And that's not what he's proposing. I'm going to show you that this morning through Titus chapter 2. What Paul is proposing to the church, well, actually to Titus, to then lead the churches in, to, to, to pour this, in, this teaching into the churches, is not that they should avoid quarreling and opinions and uh, thoughts about anything and, and just fall into a state of, of passivity and being unfeeling, apathy, but instead to burn for the right things, be zealous about certain things. We don't want to be caught being zealous about the wrong things. I was reminded of this quote from, from uh, Erwin McManus from his book, An Unstoppable Force. He said, no matter how much or how rapidly culture changes, the church is designed to prevail. God has created the church to burn for something that is forward moving, that where, where the, the gates of hell are on the defense, the, the enemy's on the defense and the church is on the offense. Yet with each cultural shift, it's painfully obvious that the church has become an institution rather than a movement. The distinction lies in the fact that the institutions preserve culture while movements create culture. And oftentimes we think of the church needing to be counterculture, but I would actually propose that a better description of the role of the church in the world is not counterculture, but, but sub, uh, sub, subversive to culture, where we create culture just because we are. When you think of a city being a city on a hill or a lamp burning brightly, if that's the description Jesus gives uh, of the church, we innately burn. We innately give off something that attracts the world, that catches the attention of the world. So we should be subversive to the world, not counter to the world. Always reactive, always re trying to respond and come up with something to, to counter what they've, they've created. But instead, we create something completely other because it's of another kingdom. So Titus chapter 2. Here's the context of, of Titus this is Paul writing a letter to a leader in the early church and, and Titus specifically, Paul uh, appointed to, to raise up leaders amongst a lot of the Greek churches because Titus was of Greek um, heritage. And so he raised them up and he, uh, he appointed him to, to help the churches in Crete and in Corinth, he, he affirmed his, his ministry there. So he, he became kind of a regional leader to appoint elders and to bring order to the church. But just like in every age, there was a lot of false teachers. There was a lot of um, um, divisions and conflicts in the churches. And so Paul gave him some very specific instruction here. And so we're going to take a look at that this morning, starting in verse 11. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. I encourage you to read the entire book. You could do that while you're eating your Wheaties in the morning. You could read the three chapters of Titus, which I'd encourage you to do. But here, starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. 
It's the greatest message of human history. The grace of God has appeared for all people, for your neighbor, for your loved ones, for your kids, for every single human being in here, every single human being in Ames. The grace of God has appeared for the salvation of them all, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. We don't often think of the grace of God being a training agent, but that's how Paul describes the grace of God. It's not just forgiveness of sin, sins. The grace of God is also an agent to bring about change, to train us to avoid ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That's the relevance of the gospel. It's relevant in every single age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify us for himself, a people for his own possession, who are passive for good works, who are apathetic about good works, no, who are zealous for good works. We get worked up about doing some things, but some very specific things, and he's gonna unpack that. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with some passivity, you know, with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Paul is a man of passion. No one can argue with that. So Paul obviously would replicate that passion in the leaders that he raises up. And he, he, he envisions a church that's moving forward with passion, with vigor, with creativity, with forward momentum, not just surviving, not kind of licking her wounds, but a church that's vibrantly moving forward. So he says, remind them, remind these believers to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And anytime we get enthralled by all the governmental, uh, political debates of our age, we should, we should take a lesson from the New Testament church who had much bigger opposition governmentally and politically than, than we have faced in our generation, in, at least in the Western world, in the United States. And yet this is, his, this is how he commends them. Be submissive. Speak evil of no one. Be ready to do every good work. Be gentle. I mean, that, that could not be the description of how many of us act, especially on social media and what we see on the news. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Don't be passive about these things. Insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sin sinful, he is self-condemned. I want to key in on verses eight and nine there, of chapter three, verses eight and nine, because I, I feel like Paul draw, draws the clearest line. I mean, I think you see it 
He's, he's very passionate about a few things. He's telling us to avoid other things, the quarreling, the, the needless divisions, conspiracies and speculations, genealogies, which we'll talk about. But he draws a line to help us see some things that are profitable and some things that are unprofitable. Verse eight of chapter three says, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in them or believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable. Some translations say these things are beneficial to everybody. The good news should be, and when the church, when this is burning in our hearts, it is literally beneficial to everybody. The good news should be good news to a, dying, a hurting and dying desperate world. It really should be. And that's what's burning in Paul's hearts. That's what he wants them, them to be enamored by, to be enthralled by, is the truly radically good news of Jesus Christ. It's beneficial to everybody. In the very next sentence, he says, he says that list, to avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. What are they? He doesn't leave any debate about it. He says they are worthless and unprofitable. Literally useless and empty. So we should avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, and disputes about the law. What is Paul talking about? How is that relevant to our life today? Foolish controversies. You know, there were, there's a lot of controversies that different scholars point to in this passage that Paul could be directly referring to. But just to give you a, kind of a, a sampling, you know, it's, it's evident like in Paul's letters to the, the churches in Corinth, or sorry, in the church in Corinth that, that they were enamored by the names of certain leaders, associations with certain leaders, and these super apostles that would kind of prop themselves up. And, and Paul is... Paul, in his letters to the church in Corinth, he points them towards being a follower of Jesus, not being the follower of any man or leader. So yeah, you may follow Paul, you may follow Apollos, you may follow Peter, but at the end of the day, follow Jesus. And how often do we see those types of controversies about associations today in the 21st century? We still see it. Oh, that person, they believe this, or they, they, we can broad broad brush them under this category with this label and they associate with that person who believes this, who's a heretic. And so then, and I think they had lunch with that person over there and, and these controversies, especially online, just kind of spiral out of control quickly. I would tell us that we should avoid foolish controversies. Let's keep the main thing, the main thing. Let's, let's focus on what's essential instead of needless, prideful controversies. And I would put them in that category as being prideful to think that we are the judge of these people's orthodoxy. Not that we need to be unthoughtful or that we need to be undiscerning, but to try to broad brush people under certain categories and certain labels, I would call it foolish controversies. He then says genealogies, because I know how much you all love genealogies. I know you guys. And in 2 Timothy, he actually pairs myths and genealogies together there seemed to be, and there's not a consensus on this, but there's a, there seems to be in the early church this uh, contingency of people that were being distracted with these genealogies in the, old, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, and they were trying to speculate about them being genealogies of, of angels. And it led to the worship of angels. So it became this whole kind of mythical spectacle unto itself of bad doctrine. And so when, when, the, when the word of God starts to become um, kind of out there and very speculative, conspiratorial. 
I can tell you, you should reground yourself. Get on your knees and say, God, search me and know me. I want what's essential, not what's out there. I mean, you could put it in the category of, of today's uh, age and like the, the realm of numerology, like those people who, who try to add up all the numbers in the Bible to co- get some secret code or, or you know, all the Greek letters represent certain numbers and therefore if we add up those, those numbers, they, they're, they're gonna tell us when Jesus is coming back. That stuff is foolishness. And anytime our minds start to go that direction or do you see a video on YouTube, I'm serious, I know, I know you've seen them because we have an entire generations being educated off of YouTube. When we see those types of speculative, conspiratorial um, nonsense, we need to get on our knees and say, God, I want to keep the main thing the main thing. I want to be passionate for that which matters, for what's essential, and not get off the rails in speculations. And then thirdly, he says, disputes about the law. And that, you know, that's not as common in our day, but it was, it was a huge, it was the defining issue of the early church. And the entire, you know, 28 chapters of the book of Acts is, is dedicated to telling that story because we are a people that our roots are from the, the Jewish people. We can never be separated from that reality. We've been grafted in to God's redemptive story for Israel. We've been grafted into that. So we're a little more disconnected from those disputes about the law but they, they still exist. I mean, I, I come across believers still to this day that, you know, they'll say, if you, if you don't worship on a seventh-day Sabbath, you know, you're not really worshiping Jesus on the right day. I had a guy walk into the church a couple weeks ago saying, you know, if we worship, if we, if we worship God through Christmas and Easter, you know, we're, we're actually worshiping God through these pagan, you know, these holidays that are tied to pa- pagan holidays, and therefore we're off base, and we're in error, and, and false doctrine, and, and whatnot, and that's hogwash, we, they, are what they, they are what we make of them. <laughs> to, to God, each day it can be a Sabbath rest to him, and each day can be a commemoration of the things that God has done in our life. They are what we make of them. They could be idols, but they don't have to be idols. We don't make them an idol. So those things are those non-essential things that Paul is going after. We need to avoid those things. Don't get all worked up. Don't get all... Um, don't, don't begin to burn for those things that are non-essential. Instead, burn for that which is essential. So that begs the question then, what is essential, right? So we're gonna take a look at that. That's what we're gonna spend a great deal of our time looking at this morning. I'm not gonna get off the rails just talking about all the, the nonsense out there, but we're gonna talk about what's essential. What is essential in Titus chapter two and three here? That he, this is not an exhaustive list. This is what I'm just showing us that Paul pointed us to here in Titus, what should we burn for? And my goal, even this week as I was preparing this message, is like, or my goal is that people would leave with more of a burning passion for these three things than when you walked in here. It'd be more your heartbeat. You'd be more enthralled by it. You'd be putting your head on your pillow at night, thinking and meditating more on these things than you did yesterday. So first is this, it's the radical grace of God the scandalous grace of God that every time we meditate on it, every time we think on it, it should bring us to our knees. It should invoke something emotional in us. Whether it be tears, whether it be laughter, whatever it is, there should, it's so otherworldly. It's so, I mean, it is the basis. The, the scandal of, the, of, of grace is, is uh, it's the, the, the central theme of the gospel that our hearts need to be enthralled by. In verse 11, he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. It's good news to all of humanity. In verse 14, he says, who gave himself up for us 
to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. He wanted you. He wants you. So much so that he'd give his life to redeem you. So you're not discarded, you're not unwanted, you are wanted in the kingdom of God so much that he'd spill his own blood for you. Chapter three, verses four and five. It's when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our savior, appeared. He saved us. He saved us. It's the radical grace of God. So I wanna ask you this question this morning. Who was it that you were before you knew Christ? Who were you before you knew Christ? What did God save you from? That should be something readily on our heart. Who we used to be before we knew Christ. Who it was that he redeemed us from. You know, here he talks about how we used to be foolish and disobedient and led astray by all these worldly passions. We used to be filled with malice and envy. We used to be hated and we used to hate others consistently. That's who we used to be. And I stand before you as one redeemed, one set free, one who God, who God saved from brokenness, from rejection, from sexual addiction, from lying, from unforgiveness, from hatred. Those are all the things that God saved me from. And praise God, Paul's not advocating for some sort of perfectionism before heaven. But we need to have a firm conviction burning in our hearts that God forgave us of those things. He's redeemed us from, from those things and we are victorious over those things now in Christ. It's the radical grace of God. Who did God save, or who, who is it that God saved you from? What did he save you from in your life? I believe we should never be distant from our prodigal son moment. Luke 15 tells one of the most beautiful uh, stories describing the gospel describing us like this son who completely betrayed his father, wanted his inheritance now, essentially telling his dad, I wish you were dead. And he went off and frivolously spent it, heartlessly, no feeling for his father. But then at the end of, him, at the end of himself, really at the end of his money, he realizes maybe I can go and grovel at my dad's feet and he'll take me back. It's one of the most beautiful points in scripture in Luke chapter 15. It's when it says the father even while the son was still a long ways off, he saw him and he ran to him. That's the radical grace of God. And I pray that that is always something that's firmly fixed in your heart. That moment when you came to the end of yourself and you saw your father running to you. He didn't hit him upside the head. He didn't rebuke him. You know, sons and daughters, as children of God, there's moments where he corrects us and rebukes us. But in that moment of redemption, that's not what he did. Instead, he put a robe around him. He put a ring on his finger. He said, we're gonna throw you a party. I'm just so stoked. My son is home. That always needs to move us. That always needs to compel us. That always needs to be something that burns in our heart. Thank God for the radical grace of God. I was reminded of this book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, which I highly recommend. Brennan Manning says this. We should be astonished at the goodness of God. Stunned that he should bother to call us by name. This is the God of the universe. The holy God of the universe, holy meaning set apart. He is unlike anything else in the entire universe. All realms of existence. He is completely other and yet he chose to call us by name. Our mouths wide open at his love. 
bewildered that at this very moment we are standing on holy ground. That should wreck us. We should be enthralled by that. And later he says this, my deepest awareness of myself is that I'm deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I have done nothing to earn it or deserve it. At the end of the day, the entire world can crash around you, but you can have that firm, fixed, burning conviction in your heart that Jesus calls you a son, that you are loved. I pray that burns in your heart. This morning, God just set this up. This is so amazing that Miss Loretta is here in church because she hasn't been able to be with us for a few months. Loretta Dennis, many of you guys know her, now 95 years old. Amazing. Almost 96. Oh, 96, almost 97. Okay, I was off. Amazing, yes. Long time, long time member of our church, saint of the Lord. And uh, I've been, been able to spend a little bit more time with her over the last couple months and um, a couple weeks ago. And what an amazing testimony. She's had a, a difficult life. She lost her mother when she was 12 and essentially raised her kids as a single mother because she married an alcoholic and it's such an amazing saint of the Lord, and she still beams with the joy of Jesus. It's awesome. It is a testimony to me. It encourages me anytime I hang out with her. But a couple of weeks ago, I went to visit her, and I brought with me Ryan Vogler, um, just because he happened to pass in the office as I was heading out the door, and so I invited him along. And the significance was, was big for me, because Ryan Vogler had been hanging out with our Chi Alpha community for a couple months. Finally, he came on a Sunday morning and Miss Loretta spoke out with an interpretation of tongues, which I don't, she hadn't done a ton. And, um, and that morning, you know, even though Ryan had heard the gospel many times that morning, that word pierced Ryan's heart. And that was his prodigal son moment when he heard the father calling him. And it brought him to the end of himself. He surrendered his life to Christ. And so I, I wanted to make that connection. I had done that before, but I thought it'd be amazing for him to come spend time with Loretta as well. But I couldn't, I, I'll never forget that, that afternoon. I hung out with Miss Loretta because Ryan, as a newer believer, was sharing his heart and she prayed a passionate prayer, an anointed prayer over him. Then she looked at him and said, just receive the joy of the Lord, smile. Because he was kind of somber about some things. And later, as we, as we got ready to go, he still had some te- uh, tears streaming down his face. Just remember, smile, Ryan, smile. And here she is at 96 years old. Some days I'm sure wondering, oh God, how much longer? How much longer before I just get to go be with you? And still the thing bubbling up in her heart is to tell a younger, a younger man of God, a younger believer, you gotta smile, receive the joy of the Lord. How incredible is that? I pray that be this, the, the case for, for me. That be my testimony. At the end of my days, I can still stand before young people and say, receive the joy of the Lord. You gotta smile. Loretta, you are an inspiration. So glad you're here this morning. At meet and greet, I was so stoked to see you. So glad you're here. So the radical grace of God should wreck us anytime we stop and just meditate on it. That is essential. Second is this, the renewing power of Christ. The renewing power of Christ. Verse 12 He says that grace of God is training us. If you'll allow it, the the grace of God will train you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. God is not oblivious to the age in which we live. And so in fact, he's given us a grace to equip us, to train us, 
to actually avoid continuing to live in ungodliness and just being whimsically uh, enslaved by worldly passions. Amen, right? Praise God for that grace, that renewing power of Christ to make us new, to change us. And in verse 14, he says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify us for himself, for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. God has created you for something. And so for, for Paul, there's no, um, there's no disconnect, there's no difficulty in receiving a gospel of grace that's not by works while still contending for a gospel of grace that produces good works. And we need to be a people that are, are just as passionate about a renewing power of God that actually... Uh, transforms us into be people that actually produce good works. There should be fruit from our lives that the world can see of, tr- of true transformation. And in verse three, you know, he goes through that list of all the things that we used to be. People before your loved ones, before your kids, before your parents, before your siblings. And you can say, this is who I used to be. I used to be foolish. This is verse three, chapter three, verse three. I used to be foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, filled with malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. He's saying it past tense because there is supposed to be a day when we move on from those things into victory. So that this lie that we believe, that we're just going to always be subject to the same things, the same sins day after day after day. I'm just, this is my struggle. This is my lot, my lot in life. This is my thorn in the flesh. I'm just going to continue to struggle with the same sins day after day after day until I'm 96. That's, that's, that's not the gospel that we read about here. That, that's a different gospel that maybe you want to accept as, as, as your, the narrative over your life. But that's not the gospel that I read about in Scripture. The gospel I read about in Scripture is a renewing power that actually transforms. So that with burning conviction, we can say, this is, this is who I used to be. I'm not saying I've arrived, but that's definitely not my, my identity. The, those ungodly ways, that's not who I am. Some of the early church and some even in our current day, they've, they've preached this gospel of grace that actually means a license for sin. That was common in the early church and Paul spoke out against it time and time again. The gospel, that is, a, that is a, an affront on the, gospel, the beautiful gospel of grace when we use the gospel of grace as a license to do whatever we want. We don't see that anywhere in scripture. We need to have more faith in the power of God than the power of the devil. Come on. It's true. Sometimes, sometimes we, we have a lot more faith in his, the enemy's power over us and the power of the curse over our lives than we do in the power of God to renew us and restore us and transform us to restore us to what he called us to be and created us to be. We just look back to the garden, to who God created you to be, to be more image bearers, to not be just curse bearers, but to be image bearers. So what does that burning vision of the gospel look like in your life? Is it evident to those around you? I'm confident that in the next generation, they're gonna catch a glimpse of a church that's burning red hot with a vision of the true gospel of transformation and change that they're gonna take notice. That's what they're hungry for. As I I spend time with young people and as I spend time with my own kids, we're having a lot of conversations in in our home. We don't avoid the topics of of marriage and sexuality in our home because for us, they're not taboo. Actually, God created those things before the fall. 
And we talk about them in a vibrant way, in a way that, that's beautiful, the way, the way God created them to be. Not as things we just try to avoid and we're just gonna clench our fists and try to, try to avoid these things in our life. But instead we say, how did God create them to be? I believe when a, when a younger generation sees how God created them to be, they're hungry for order. They're hungry to see something other than what the world is espousing with its confusion and chaos, which is obviously a dead end. Oh, I want us, just, I want us to burn with a, a conviction of the power of God to really change. And in verse, verse um, five, he says, that's the regeneration a regenerating and renewing power of the Holy Spirit. That is the, the daily work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to make us new, new creation. Are you giving Holy Spirit access to your daily life in that regard? That he can regenerate you and renew you to allow you to be an overcomer today, to allow you to taste and see freedom. And third is this, as I realize I'm running out of time, it's the return of Christ Come quickly, Jesus. Come quickly, worship team. You guys can come forward. The return of Christ is the third, non-negotiable for Paul. It's the essential of the gospel. It's the return of Christ. And sadly, I think, you know, there's pendulums of emphasis in the church. The 20th century, there was a, an emphasis for sure on the return of Christ. So much so that I believe many got burnt out. Because some people took the emphasis of the return of Christ they took it too far to start speculating about days and times and places. And it, and it erred to the, to the side of, of just that, of, of speculations and foolishness. Rather than the main idea of the gospel of his soon imminent return, that he's coming again. That has been the heartbeat of the church for 2000 years, that we are living in the last days. We scratch our heads because it's days. But that's the description, the Old Testament description of the era in which we live now, today. This moment in redemptive history, it's the last days and we're living there. We're living in that moment of Christ's soon return. And that urgency needs to burn in our hearts. You know, the, the New Testament talks a lot about this subject. So I think we've avoided it more so in the 21st century, like I said, because we because we kind of got burnt out, it, uh, burnt out on it in the 20, 20th century, but it needs to be talked about. You know, in the New Testament, it's talked about 240 times, the return of Christ. It was the, the anthem, the heartbeat, the hope of the early church. And that's why Paul emphasizes it here as part of the redemptive story of the gospel of grace. Verse 13, we're waiting for our blessed hope. He is our hope. That's why we can look out across this world that's messed up and chaotic and crazy, say we have a hope. We have a message of hope because we have one who's coming to rule and reign, to actually create a new heaven and a new earth. The appearing of the glory of our great God and savior, Jesus Christ. You can wake up with that hope every single day. And later in, in verse uh, chapter three, verse seven, He's saying we're justified by his grace that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You have an eternity ahead of you of co-laboring with Christ as heirs with him. He doesn't call you a servant, he calls you a friend. You have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. In that, that, that day of his appearing, he's gonna usher in this new age 
of us reigning as heirs with Christ, amen? I hope that burns in your heart. I hope it moves from some theory that Pastor Drew talks about every once in a while to something that's actual or reality that you just can't wait. And I hear Loretta talk about heaven and reigning with Christ and sitting with Christ. And what's, what's my appetite? That should burn in our hearts. Currently, there's all sorts of debate about chapter 17, or Jude, verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, and continually, that's the way the early church spoke. Hey, we need to keep this in the forefront of our minds. The predictions about Christ's soon return. They said to you in the last time, there's gonna be scoffers following their ungodly passions. It's these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit, and that's what we see in Matthew 24 when Jesus talks about the end times. It's this picture of, of the times getting worse. More and more difficulties, more trials, more tribulations, more darkness in the world, more deceptions, more sin. But then at the same time, the very next verse, but you beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others, snatching them out of the fire to, show, uh, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So it's not a sad, pathetic church that's licking its wounds into survival mode where we all hunker down in our bunkers. No, it's a vibrant church moving forward, marching forward, while the world is also sinking into deeper depravity. It's both. I want us to respond to Jesus this morning. I apologize for going over. In this series, Blind Spots, the whole purpose of this series has been a series of preparation, that God would prepare us for how he wants to use us. So the, the question this morning has been pretty clear. What is it that your heart burns for? What are you burning for? Do you get more worked up about traffic than you do about the grace of God? Do you get more worked up about the latest movie, the latest um, sensational entertainment controversy, about politics, about sports, than you do about the return of Christ and the renewing power of Christ to transform and to renew? Let's close our eyes and bow our heads across this place. We need to respond to Jesus this morning. So Lord, this morning, we choose to respond to your tender grace, your mercy upon us. It is your mercy to bring conviction and to bring change about in our lives. That's the grace of God. We just read that, to train us, to actually overcome ungodliness, 
begin to live victorious over these worldly ways. So we submit ourselves to your grace and to your mercy this morning. We say, God, search us, know us. Any distractible way in us. Any part of us that's continually drawn to the wrong, wrong things, that we're getting worked up and passionate about the wrong things. We repent of those things right now. of being more educated by, from YouTube than from your word. We repent of being distracted by speculations and conspiracies. Of, you know, the, the talking heads that are constantly vying for our attention. We, we turn from those things, those non-essential things, those things that your word just said are unprofitable and worthless we turn towards that which is beneficial for everyone. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The radical grace of God, the renewing power of Christ, the return of Christ. Lord, let those things burn in our heart. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. For more information about LifePoint Church, please visit www.livethemessage.org.